every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Killer Casting, where we try to curate for you what you should be watching and binging in TV and film. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm the casting director, probably best known for my work on the long-running show Criminal Minds, where I cast villains and victims and every kind of character involved in crime. And that includes grieving parents, witnesses to crime, uh, innocent bystanders, and not-so-innocent bystanders not so innocent bystanders, which is apropos to the film, the astonishing film that we're going to talk about today. We're going to continue our coverage on Promising Young Woman. But once again, I need to offer a trigger warning, okay, for the content of today's show, because this film deals with themes of violence, sexual assault, self-harm, and a very explicit scene of a woman being killed. So we're going to be discussing that, but I want you to please, please take care of yourself and know your boundaries. Okay, so here we go. I want you to say hello to my beautiful, sexy beast co-host, Dean Laffin. Say hello. Hello, Lisa, and uh, hello, pod listeners. Hello, world. Hello, everyone. Okay, listen. Last up, we were covering this adrenaline-inducing film, Promising Young Woman, with two friends of mine who are in law enforcement, but I wasn't finished. I am not finished discussing this film. It's a very divisive film in some respects, and I wanted to bring out some big guns. I need some big fucking badass feminist brains to help me deconstruct and decode Emerald Fennell's stunning writing and directing as well as the performances. And because this story has to do with an incident that occurs on a college campus, wouldn't it be great to talk to women who have actually worked on college campuses. So with me today, I have two very special guests. The first one is going to introduce herself right now. Hi, I'm Tanya Modleski. I've taught for many years at the University of Southern California. Uh, my specialties are feminism, and uh, I study popular culture and film and some literature, and I've written books on film and popular culture. So I'm very excited to be here today, and thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Tanya, can you just list a couple of the titles of your books? My first book was actually titled Loving with a Vengeance, Mass-Produced Fantasies for Women, and it dealt with Harlequin romances, Gothic romances, and soap operas. Um, I've written a couple of other books, and perhaps the one that still keeps getting in new editions and keeps getting in, uh, adapted in courses is a book on Hitchcock called The Women Who Knew Too Much, Hitchcock and Feminist Theory. Fantastic. Uh, okay. And that's not all we have for you today. We have another brilliant mind. I'm so excited that she's on the show. We please introduce yourself. Thank you, Lisa. Um, I'm Dr. Caroline Hildman. I'm the chair of the Critical Theory and Social Justice Department at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And my work is on systems of power uh, in both politics and media. So I look at representations of race, gender, ability, sexuality, age, and body size in the intersections of those. In the U.S., mostly the U.S. context, U.S. media, although I have worked recently in a number of global studies. So I do analysis of uh, media, but also U.S. politics and how those things tie together in terms of who we think is a possessor of knowledge, who has worth in our society, and how media representations actually translate into uh, lived experiences. So I don't know why I have you on the show. You have nothing to say about this film, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure this film didn't resonate with you guys at all. Okay, so I've got so much to ask you about this film. But first of all, did you see the trailer of the film before you saw the actual film? Just curious. I didn't see the trailer. I just heard about the trailer and thought, I'm not watching this film. Really? 
Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So why did you not want to watch it until I wrote you and begged you to watch it? Uh, Well, it was $20. And and I thought I would wait until it was cheaper. um, Because I assumed that it was just a, you know, another rape revenge movie, which I'm not totally against, by the way, but I just prefer to pay less for them. So it wasn't like I'm never going to watch this movie, but I thought I would take my time. And then, of course, when it became so when it became nominated for so many awards and then became controversial, I thought, well, I better get on this. And Carolyn. How about you? When you, I'm just talking about just the trailer, the expectations that were set for this film. Yeah, the expect. So I did watch the trailer, and I knew that I had to see it. I don't actually enjoy rape revenge or movies that depict rape because Hollywood gets it wrong so much of the time that it's exhausting. But I knew that this was going to be a pop culture phenomenon, and I was expecting a rape revenge movie. That's not what this is. It's something quite different, and it definitely delves into some of the more kind of realistic, interesting aspects of what happens in a rape culture, but it ultimately ended up, if you were looking for a rape revenge movie, this is not going to be satisfying in that sense at all. So it's interesting to me because this was written and directed by a female and the trailer was very much a bait and switch. I mean, completely. It definitely makes you think that this is going to be a woman seeking a bloody revenge for probably her sexual assault. And I think that the filmmakers are very savvy that that's what people are being invited in to see. Maybe it's going to be like a Kill Bill, or maybe it's going to be any number of revenge fantasies. And ladies, if you saw my notes, you would think I was an absolute mad person because I was literally taking notes every shot and writing how this filmmaker is completely flipping the script on expectations from the very first cold open where you're in a club and you're not seeing women scantily dressed and gyrating, but you're seeing men in chinos and Brooks Brothers shirts in their hunting ground. And scene by scene, like it or not, she flips the script. The director is an actress herself, but and she's not in the film, but she may as well have been. She, she may as well have been. She is. Yeah. Who does she play? She plays the woman who's showing how to do blowjob lips. Oh, my God, you're right. Oh, thank you for catching that. Okay, well, she also may as well have peeked her head through the screen to say, gotcha, you thought this was what was happening, but it's not. Check yourself, check your expectations. And I can't think of another film that does that so blatantly. Well, we'll dig into some certain scenes, but sort of what was your overall feeling as you watched the film and then the ending? The first, I watched the film twice. And the first time I was mesmerized by it, I was surprised by all the twists. I was delighted by it. I was excited about it. And then the as the more I thought about it, the more I had a lot of questions and reservations, which didn't make me hate the film. I mean, I still think it's a really interesting film and it's interesting to get discussions going. And that's very, very important. So I can discuss some of the problems that I had, but I like the way that it switched tones. I like that it became sort of rom-commy in the middle and then switched again. I think one of the surprises are um, it goes in out of genres so that it's comic and it's horrific and it's about it's melodramatic it's about grief and loss so all those things I liked I liked the ending I thought oh great here she dies and she's like (laughs) and it ends with like the the Hollywood marriage except that that's totally disrupted um, and he's arrested the rapist and I was just delighted and then I thought uh, wait a minute, my delight is resting on the fact that this woman can only get revenge through death. So that was one of the big reservations that I had. Yeah. And Caroline, you, please go ahead, your overall hit on the film and structure. Yeah. So I forgot to mention in my intro that I'm one of the early architects of the campus anti-rape movement that we launched in 2013. And then, you know, snowballs into Women of Fox, Cosby, and then the Me Too movement. So watching this was like deja vu, right? So I, it's not at all a rape revenge film in, I think, two regards. So rape revenge films have both a really gratuitous 
I would argue, sexist depictions where they ask you to sexualize sexual violence with the rape, and then they have very gratuitous, violent revenge, right? It actually didn't have either of these. And so I, the first being missing, the sexual objectification of, of women and the, you know, the sexualization of violence, I was relieved by that because, again, Hollywood gets it wrong so much of the time. But I thought that this film, it, it was like deja vu because it's what happens with institutions and bystanders and good guys and all of this, right? So it was every rape myth that she puts herself in the position, she was asking for it. So you hear, so it's it's Cassie who's avenging her friend Nina's rape, right? And so you hear all of these rape myths about Nina coming up. And then you have the bystander, you have Alison Brie, who, uh, her character Madison, who, who does nothing. And that's, you know, the bystanders play a crucial role in whether or not survivors feel believed or not. And then you've got the nice guy, right? Uh, he says, I'm not a bad person. You know, we were just kids. And then you've got the institutions that uphold it. So you've got Dean Walker, uh, you know, it's a, he said, she said, we wouldn't want to ruin a young man's life. And just the casting of Connie Britton in that role. Really is your- Genius. Yeah. Just Lisa, you talk about flipping it. You're like, oh, she's going to help. Connie Britton always plays. She's always a good guy, right? She always plays feminist characters. And yet here she is, the voice of the institution, basically saying that, yeah, they you know, so many women are raped, but can you really believe them? We don't want to ruin a, a young guy's life. And then you have the lawyer who defends rapists and gets a kickback. You also have a really accurate representation of how it, you know, the death by suicide, which we have seen that we don't have good stats on, but the numbers are uh, outrageously high for survivors of sexual violence. And then you have lives absolutely detoured. Um, I thought the the death scene at the end, as Tonya pointed out, just you you only get you only get justice through death, right? So in order to get justice, what do you have to do? You literally have to give up your life. And I thought about that too. And I was like, oh, wow, it's hitting the nail on the head of what happens when rape survivors come public and how they're they're bashed and they're bruised in, in a public forum. I didn't love the gratuitously long death scene. And maybe somebody saw some reason to have that, but I think that would be my my only big critique of the film is... I didn't. I don't want to watch somebody. I do think that the ending, though, is is meant is it makes you feel upbeat that she dies and gets her revenge that way. Um, Not me. The funny little text that she writes to him at the end. um, The fact that the wedding is disrupted. You just. I was chortling about that, Um, and so I think that. The tone of the ending bothered me more than, I mean, I agree that it sort of goes along with the sociological understanding of what happened, you know, of of death of people like Cassie and like Nina. But I think that it's played for... a certain amusement, though, Lisa, you weren't amused. <laughs> oh my God. I got to tell you, I, you know, I was loving this film so much. And at hour 40, I literally smashed my computer shut because I was so expecting her to somehow get out of, to, to fight him off or to have Ryan come to the rescue or something to happen so that she didn't die. And I could not believe it. And one thing I do know, Caroline, about the length of her death that is about how long it takes to kill a woman that way. I didn't mean, by the way, the death scene itself was played for laugh. I meant the very ending. My colleagues on my other show who are in law enforcement, FBI agents, and who have seen a million crime scenes like this, and they always say, well, Hollywood gets it wrong because they don't show how long it actually takes to strangle a woman, how long it takes to suffocate her. And I do know, listening to Emerald Fennell, saying she wanted to just look straight at it and see what how long it takes and how the victim suffers and struggles and fights for their life. Because so many times we discovered a case like this, Shannon Watts's death, where people were saying, well, she didn't fight back. Yeah, they do fight back. But you know, when you're being suffocated with a fucking pillow, you don't have 
you know, nobody has the cuts and the bruises and the scrapes. And anyway, so I really hated that they killed her at the end. I couldn't believe it. I was ready to like not even cover this film. And at the end, the whole getting arrested at the wedding and all that, I just felt like that doesn't make up for it for me. But then I just sort of sat with it for a while and I listened to what Emerald Fennell had to say about it. And now I take her point that when women women do die when they try to fight back, when they try to get their justice from an offender. She either had to let go of Nina and let go of that grief and move on with her life, or she had to get justice and probably die and throw herself into the wolves, literally. So I accept that, but that was a hard one. It would have been for me much more satisfying to see Cassie carve Nina's name in his face and have him have to go to his wedding. That would be like the ending I would cheer for, but she didn't go there. Again, she flipped the script a bit. It felt very Thelma and Louise-y in that sense, right? That system is so stacked against you that the only way you get any sort of justice is a freedom through death. Um, I mean, I, I think it's, it's an allegory for the real world, but it's also just, it's just painful to watch her not really get revenge. And I, I did want more violence with the men she was setting up. I wanted all of that to be more realistic also, because if you're, if you're going out and you're setting up uh, men who think of themselves as nice guys, they're not going to suddenly you know, she would have faced so much more violence for, for running that game on men. Um, I mean, there's, there are a few other points too, where it was like, ah, oh, it's so disappointing. And then you look at why you're disappointed. You're like, ah, oh, it's because it really is that bad. I thought the, um, just in terms of the, the death scene, it was very confronting. And I've, I heard that the, the crew themselves were quite traumatized a bit by the process and I'm sure they would have had people on set to look after them for that but it was great acting from the character who played Al because he you really got that sense that he was so angry at her and so furious but also I think scared and by using the pillow he's literally shutting her mouth right he's 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 got the pillow over her mouth to kill her and not have to look at her face either right Exactly. Oh, depersonalize. Yeah, 100%. And the close-ups of him with his hand on the metal bedhead trying to get this done. But he's scared, panicked, annoyed, you know, in a rage. I couldn't clock what else it reminded me of. And I don't know if the three of you or either of you have seen the movie Sicario. I have seen part of it. So there's a scene where Emily Blunt's character, Kate, is seduced by a guy called Ted, who's been sent to kill her by the cartel. And he's choking her on the floor. And the intensity with this actor, I don't know his name, is the same as the intensity with Al. He's just furious. He's trying to strangle her. He's saying, stop moving. Like, stop trying to, (laughs) I'm trying to murder you here. Would you please cooperate a little bit? It was, you know, it was just a very intense scene. And that reminded me of that, the the same thing. So, but yeah, like you, I was uh, really just cheering for her to get out of that in some way, shape or form. But, you know, what Emily, what um, Emerald did throughout was just set up one rug after another to pull it out, right? Just when you think you've got it sorted out, it's like, whoop, no, there goes another one. Oop, there goes another one. Yeah, very intense thing. What did you think when the the best friend played by... (laughs) The wonderfully slimy Max Greenfield comes in, sees the quote unquote dead stripper and his friend chained. And and what did you think of that whole interaction of those two men? It shifted the um, the sort of the nice guy who only wants to rape you if you're drunk, which seems to me a little bit implausible. I think Caroline was sort of touching on that. Okay, so she sobers up. So they've got her in the bedroom they could very easily continue to rape her and they don't. But then the whole nice guy thing was really very plausible that you can be nice, you can be a nice guy and still commit these horrible things. So I like the fact that they cast all of these male characters who had played nice guy roles previously and then came on and weren't so nice. But at the end, the two guys turn into maniacs. And I wonder if that doesn't kind of 
switch the message a little bit so that you have sort of these guys who are almost acting like psychos, like when they're burning her, there's no remorse and the friend kicks her hand back under the pyre in disgust that he has to touch it with his foot, her hand. So there was there was this kind of tonal shift and I wonder if it didn't shift the whole message of the film or some of the message of the film. And I would follow up on that to say I took it as as definitely a flip of it, the biggest critique that this film does is of the nice guy trope, right? Dean is, you pointed out, there was a level of intensity when he is suffocating her. And I think that's a moment at which you see, uh, you don't, you know, these guys are not nice guys, but they still have the khakis and the veneer and all, all of the performance of nice guy. And then suddenly you see his aggrieved entitlement come out, right? That she, he's not only going to kill her, but she needs to make it easier for him to kill. She needs to stop moving so he can just be done with the with the murder already. Um, and then when you see his his friend come in, there's also a dynamic there that was so interesting, right? That he has uh, the friend has literally no regard for this woman because he thinks she's a sex worker, right? And so you see this ultimate. He doesn't know who she is, um, but he, you see this ultimate. She doesn't matter, and she especially doesn't matter because she's a stripper. And then you see, you know, the veneer is just completely stripped off these guys when the dude bros get together to cover up the murder. And as as you point out, uh, it, you know, the last scene with the pyre, he's kicking her hand and disgusted. And I don't just as an aside in that particular moment, her bubblegum colored nail polish that you see throughout the movie. I, I don't know why it struck me, but it was just it was like just a stab to the heart looking at this bright pastel colors on her hand and he has such disdain. They've murdered her, they're burning her body, and they're disgusted by the fact that they have to kick her hand in so that it's not sticking out of the pyre. The, just the ultimate aggrieved entitlement of these good guys. How about that scene though where Joe comes into L and then when you look at the physical movement of those two characters, you know, he jumps on the bed because the guy's still handcuffed to the bed, he's holding his head and he kisses him at one point. He kisses him on the forehead and he's telling him everything's going to be good. It's almost like a male-female setup, right? The actual shot is set as if that were a male and a female, but it's these two bros that are, and he's saying, you've done nothing wrong. It's not your fault. We're going to fix this. It's all good. It's just sickening. I like that he says it's not your fault because that's what you have to try to convince women of um, when they're raped. Um, And it goes back to the men. Uh, Yeah, I thought that it it had just gone bonkers when they were burning her. But then I thought that again after I thought about it and I talked about it with my law enforcement friends. That happens. That happens. How many times every day, Dean and I, we open up the crime pages and another normal looking husband has been arrested because he fucking fed his wife to the dog or, or chopped her. You know, I mean, this, this kind of violence happens every single day. And when we see it on screen, we're like, that's just too much, but it's, it's not. One thing I really loved is how in the beginning, you think that she's a serial killer. You think that she's exacting revenge on men because she was sexually assaulted. And then you realize it's because her friend was sexually assaulted. But then you're not quite sure if she's really violent. And then she's not, you know, she's not. She's just, as you say, giving them a stern talking to during these dates. But then she starts getting pushed a little bit with her relationship with Ryan, another nice guy. And and she's pinging all these memories of the people she went to college with and feeling a real urge to expand her revenge circle to them. And each time you wonder, is this the time that she's gone too far? So she has the, her lunch with uh, Madison played by Alison Brie, and you know something is up, and you really think that she has set this trap for her to experience what it's like to be sexually assaulted, and you know when you're drunk, and so and that kind of goes on these little traps. I mean, what? How did you feel about those scenes as they came at you? I was very uncomfortable with what she did with Allison, putting her in a position where she thinks she's been raped while drunk and forgetting about it. And then I, the question that I have is, Cassie 
doesn't have any friends, right? She hires this guy to take her up to the hotel room. How does she know he's not going to take advantage of her when so many men do take advantage of you when you're drunk? So that's like a really risky and horrible move. And then she lets her stew in it for days before she tells her that nothing happened, although she doesn't really have total assurance that nothing happened. I got a sense of satisfaction having a bystander held accountable. Which oh, I did too. <laughs> never, yeah, but I had the exact same reaction that really we're going to fight rape with rape. You know, it reminds me of like prison jokes. We were working on the, the Cosby trial. Oh, I hope he goes to prison and gets rape. I don't. Uh, yeah. I really don't. That's actually, that's not the antidote. Um, but that's more from a sociocultural perspective. I actually thought... I wanted her to do more. I just did. I wanted it to be revenge. And maybe it's not going to be, you know, the vicious sort of rape revenge movie. But I honestly, by, by the end, I felt like, you know, I, I wish she would have destroyed everyone's lives because they destroyed Nina's life and they destroyed her life. And I felt like it was, you know, when they only got there and of course they interrupt this wedding with this wealthy white family. And I was chuckling like that would never happen. The police wouldn't upset a fancy event like that. But also they're only taking him away. I want everyone's lives ruined uh, so that they can truly experience what it's like to be Nina, who's you know six feet under, or what it's like to be Cassie. And they they arrested for murder explicitly. They said you're under arrest for murder. So even though apparently the rape tape has been distributed, we don't know anything about what's going to happen to them as a result of their being rapists and bystanders to rape. So part two, yes, maybe we'll see that in the second uh... in the sequel. <laughs> Well, it seems like that Cassie kind of makes sacrifices herself because she knows that they'll never be brought to justice for what happened, but they won't be able to flee what they did to her. She anticipates that she'll, she may come out of that cabin alive or she may not. And so cleverly has this contingency plan. But I think kind of that's the message is that it's the only way to get justice is by really making him pay. That's such a dark it's real life, though. That's so. So that's what I was saying. It's deja vu. Only one percent of rapists ever spend a day in a jail cell. One percent out of all of the rapes that happen, and you have all of these reasons why it goes from one hundred down to to one, right? Which is that you don't feel comfortable reporting. Uh, rape is the only crime where the victim is put on trial. If you go public, it's going to ruin your career. It's going to you're going to find out who your friends are and who they're not right quick, and then. From there, uh, you get into the law enforcement response, which is absolutely dreadful from top to bottom, from the police officers you talk to, to the detectives who um, often just most of them don't have very good training and don't understand that memories might come back in a jumbled mess that are not necessarily linear to prosecutors who pin their careers on their win-loss record. Their, their win ratio has got to be high and they know that juries are steeped in rape myths. And so most of the time you don't have the resources and time to go through those rape myths in order to deprogram a jury to even have a fair trial. So at the end of the day, yeah, 1% of rapists behind uh, you know, see even one day in a jail cell. And if we looked at the average amount of time for the crimes they commit, it's it's bafflingly small. And also we know that, you know, we ask this survey question of college men every couple of years. And we know that 41% of men coming into college say that they would engage in, in an act of sexual assault or rape if they knew they could get away with it. So four in 10. What? What? Yeah, so we live in a rape culture, right? You know, and this movie is is might seem absurd to people. It just felt very familiar to me. And I'm sure it felt familiar to Tanya, right? Where you're oh, looking yeah. at this and you're saying, Yeah, it's an allegory. I get it, it's like overstated, but in some ways it is absolutely what happens in a rape culture. And the fact that you know, four percent of men are committing about ninety-five percent of the rapes, but one in ten minutes, the the number is eleven percent over the course of a man's lifetime in the in the United States, 11% will engage in some act of sexual violence. So the number is shockingly high. Whisper something in your ear. Good God almighty. You know, they put themselves in danger, girls like that. You'd think you'd learn by that age, right? Please lay down. 
What are you doing? It's okay, hey, you're safe. What are you doing? Hey, I said, what are you doing? Hey, folks, if you're enjoying this podcast, feel free to give us a review. Big thumbs up in your listening app of choice. Plus, if you know someone else who'd like the show, send them a link because sharing is caring, right? Now, back to the show. To me, the most effective thing emotionally, that got to me emotionally in a way that not everything did, was I was completely, and I know some critics like saw Ryan from the get-go as somebody who was probably implicated in the rape. But I'm a naive viewer. I choose not to think ahead. So I loved I know. him, you know, and I thought it was so sweet. And when it turned out he was in the video, I was completely shocked and upset. And I thought, to me, that was the most effective moment because it got to me on a visceral level. Whereas the other things, of course, they got to me on a visceral level too. But it was also stuff that, as Caroline was saying, you kind of know, it's familiar if you deal with this stuff. But in this case, I was completely duped, and that was very effective, I thought. It's even worse for him. I think he's, in my mind, he's the biggest douchebag in the whole film because he knew all along what the truth was and he never told her. And as bad as what he did throughout the movie was, the absolutely damning thing was when the detective came to interview him at the end and the police officer who just wants to close the case, he just wants confirmation that, yes, she had mental health issues and she's probably died by suicide. And the camera holds on him and you see the wheels turning. He's weighing up. What if I say yes or no? Things are going to come out. My career could be ruined. I could lose my pediatrics job. And he says, yes, I believe that's the case. And he throws her under the bus and ends up siding with these bros instead of her. And I'm like, Oh, yeah. that yeah. is disgusting. I loved how the relationship unfolded. And if you notice, these are the things I noticed, that she went from wearing a lot of pink when we first see her. And as she falls deeper and deeper in love with Ryan, her color scheme changes and, and he's blue. He's always in blue. And it kind of grows more in blue. And she seems to be kind of healing. And it's a kind of a healthy relationship because he's kind of a dork and kind of weird. And I love that. And But I kept thinking, somewhere in there, there was mention of the tape and that his friends are in the tape. And so, Tanya, I knew that he's in that motherfucking tape. And also, yeah, yeah. There, when I looked at the length of the movie, when they were saying, I love you, I looked at how much movie there was left. And I'm like, okay, this is not going to go well. But I did ask my law enforcement friends, is there redemption for a character like Ryan? Is there any way that she could have forgiven him for being at the party where her friend was raped? But as Dean says, there's no redemption if he does what he does with the detective. There's no redemption if he doesn't eschew those friends and doesn't go to the wedding for fuck's sake. He could have gone to the bachelor party too and helped her out. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. Well, that's where I thought a Hollywood ending would be, that would be a Hollywood ending where he shows up in time to save her. I, the funny thing is, is that Emerald Fennell and Carrie Mulligan at the beginning of their careers as when they were very, very young were in what the British, ha it's like a law and order but the British version where it's like, you know, a body of the week and everything. And they both played these kinds of roles of women who were murdered and, and all this. And so they know this trope very, very well. And I don't think they had any interest in doing anything typical. I read an interview with Carrie Mulligan and she was saying, responding to the fact that, oh, you know, and then at the end of the movie, you know, the characters, uh, Cassie's character goes you know she goes crazy she loses her mind and she says how many hollywood films do you have where the guy you know, the, the father or the husband or the boyfriend or says is getting revenge and you know there's it's samurai swords and ninjas and stuff and no one ever goes oh well he just went and lost his mind he's doing the righteous thing so she was like what she's doing isn't even that bad compared to what those other movies do and even you know it's interesting because kill bill didn't get that kind of reaction and i wonder if that isn't because it was directed by quentin tarantino and because he was in charge you know it yes. was okay to have a same way with sudden impact where sandra Locke plays a woman who is engaged in rape revenge in one of the dirty harry movies and that is seen as well 
out pretty okay. He lets her get away with it. And again, is that because there's kind of a man in charge? And that was the first film, or that was the only film, the Dirty Harry films that he directed. Um, so as long as these guys are in charge of women who are revenging themselves against rape, then it's okay. Don't get me started on Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Don't get me started on I that. I wrote a whole article. Oh, oh my God. God. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? This is a film that's about rape and it you don't ever see the rape. You know that there's a tape and you know that the main character is watching it and all this stuff, but they don't have to show it. There's no nudity. It's amazing to me that from a female gaze, you don't need all that. The only true violence is at the hands at the end, at the hands of a man. It was just interesting to me. Anything else you guys want to opine about the film? And then I would just love to know what you're watching, what you're binging, what your recommendations are, what you love, what you're loving right now. I was just going to ask you that Caroline sent around this article. What was the name of the website? Black? Oh, Oh, I've forgotten it. But she she hated that it wasn't more of a rape revenge film and she questioned the need to make Connie Britton the poster child for the patriarchy and she is the one who has the most authority within the world of the film so which is not to say that there aren't women like the Alison Brie character Madison or Dean you know as a woman who don't protect rapists but you know what are the politics of the casting there it's just a question so this is what i mean by weaponizing the casting so connie britton's probably most beloved and favorite character of all time is on friday night lights playing uh, tammy taylor. tammy taylor and in her character is a counselor. And at the end of the series, she gets this job where she gets to be, I mean, she doesn't think she's the dean, but she's definitely there to be a counselor and a mentor for students. So then to take that Tammy Taylor iconic character and put her as the dean who is just so dismissive. You know how many rape allegations we get a week? It's like a fly in the ointment. Like it's like an annoying mosquito. It's something that I think is just interesting. I think that that's deliberate to make her that person. And like we said, to make all of these nice guy actors into these predators. And on my show, Criminal Minds, we actually had a category of psychopath that we would cast called Charm and Harm. And they're actually the worst, the most deadly, and they get away with the most because they're from the right family. They have the right job. They're unassuming you know, they're not too handsome, they're not too anything, but they can get away with it over and over and over again. And they're just a stealth predator, because they just get in and out. And I think the casting understood that. I think that Zuzu Kohler's, uh, who who made that critique, I, I think she makes a very good point that this is not a movie that is going to feel good for survivors, because it shows that in order to get justice, you have to pay with your personhood, right? And it, there isn't a good, strong revenge here, right? There isn't a, a, it doesn't have the same kind of satisfaction that survivors might get from watching rape revenge. It also, though, doesn't have all the sexual objectification and all the sexualized, the sexualization of sexual violence, which is always so horrifying in, in these uh, films. But it's a great movie for people who maybe think rape culture isn't a thing, right? Or or for a, audience members who aren't going to be triggered by it, it really does flip a lot of scripts. And I think it's interesting, as you point out, Lisa, it, they never show the rape. And it reminds me of the documentary role, Red Roll by Nancy Schwartzman that, that focuses on Steubenville and that the horrifying, you know, rape and dragging this, this young woman around that we all saw in the, in the news, right? This the day after where they're dragging this incapacitated girl from house to house. So it covers the same topic, but it never centers the rape because it's not about them. It's about the good, it's about the bystanders. It's about the institutional actors at the high school who covered it up, the coaches and administrators. Um, It's about the good guys who didn't do anything to stop it. So uh, Roll Red Roll is basically a promising young woman, but in documentary form. And it does make that same move of never showing the rape. So it's never gratuitous. And it also is, it decenters it as kind of the driver in the sense that we don't actually need to see the rape to know the, the harmful effects that it has. Right. And the concussive effects it has on everybody around the victim. 
believe it or not, I can't remember what Steubenville was about. If you can, I mean, I'm sure that's very shocking. I, so I'm very interested to see Roll Red Roll. Thank you for recommending it. Well, and it's a We've had so many high profile rape cases come out, right, with the in, intense emphasis on this. It was it was quite a few ago, right, uh, where um, two uh, two men went to prison. Uh, two young men went to prison over they. The, the images that pierced the press. So this is Steubenville, Ohio. I'm going to say it was maybe 2011, 2012. And the images that, that really made their way into the mainstream were uh, of this young woman's uh, flaccid body just being carried um, from car to car, place to place. Oh. Um, and of course, it turns out she was she was sexually assaulted at one of the houses. And there was also a video of a young man who was saying she liked it. She's passed out. And he's like laughing about raping this young woman and he wasn't the perpetrator, but he was one of the quote unquote good guys, you know, who's recording it basically a live stream while she's being raped in the next room. And Anonymous ascended to the town and did a lot of protests because they had exposed the fact that coaches and other administrative uh, school administrators covered it up. So they actively went into CYA mode and, and the entire town turned against her. And what was so fascinating to me in that moment was when Tracy Lords, who grew up in Steubenville, Ohio, came out, right? She's a porn star sex worker. She comes out and she says, look, I'm from Steubenville. I was raped in this town. Nobody talked about it. My mom was raped in this town. Nobody talked about it. So it's really an indictment of the town and every all of the institutional and other actors who made sure that this young woman was stood in the way of her getting justice. Oh my God. My God. Is that roll R O L L roll red roll? Yes. Okay. Cassandra, we're in class together at Forest. You would have been a great doctor. What happened? I left under unusual circumstances. You remember what happened, right? why I dropped out. I'm not the only one who didn't believe it. We get accusations like this all the time. Who needs brains? They never did a girl any good. Hi there, listeners. You know, we love putting the pod together, and we certainly hope that you enjoy hearing from us, but we would love to hear from you. How do we do this, you say? Well, if you visit our website, killercastingpod.com, you'll see a widget there for a little service called SpeakPipe, and you can record a message and send it to us as an audio file. So whether it's a question about an episode we've already done, maybe you've got a suggestion about a topic or a film or a series that we could jump into, we would love to hear from you, and you can be on the pod. We'll hear from you soon. My goodness, y'all. I'm so glad that I had the crazy idea to invite you on because this has been such a great conversation. Tanya, what should we be watching? I wouldn't recommend what, well, I kind of recommend it, although talk about trigger warnings. I do watch serial killer movies and um, lately I've watched The Night Stalker and Ripper and Ripper was fascinating. It was slow going to begin with, but then it showed the rise of feminist consciousness in the midst of this horrible police work where they just assumed that he was after so-called, as they kept calling her over and over, the, the victim's prostitutes, even though they weren't necessarily, but so what if they were? The rise of the women, when the women were put on curfew, and the women started, they did a kind of take back the night thing. Well, they didn't quite, they called it something else in Britain, but it was close to a, a take back the night movement. And that was the rise of that in Britain. And the whole idea was like, put curfews on men. They're the ones who are committing the crimes and you're making us stay in. So that was very interesting. On the other hand, I'm watching films about women murderers like Dead to Me, um, which I think is fascinating, and Search Party. I don't know if you oh. guys have been watching Search Party, but it's an amazing. And again, it's one of those genre benders where it's about murder and um, but it's also extremely funny. And Dead to Me has that same sort of duality there too. So I'm 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 interested in those in particular. Love it. I never I haven't seen 
I haven't seen Search Party, but I love Aaliyah Shawkat. Yeah, she's so great. And and one other thing is, is it called The Home Show? The one with Jennifer Aniston and that's the, about the Today Show when Matt Lauer was, it's a fictionalization. Oh, isn't it Good it's, it's Morning? The Morning Show, right. And it's that one talk about the Me Too movement and rape and all of that. I mean, that one I think is a very, very fine series um, with Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell and Reese Witherspoon. Awesome. Any other things you're binging, Caroline, that you're loving, obsessed with? Guilty pleasures. Now's the time. Spill the tea. You know, it's a little, it's a little white for me, meaning that it's the cast isn't diverse enough. But Firefly Lane, um, which is uh, actually ha- depicts a rape scene and the ramif- lifelong ramifications of rape does it really, really well. And it's got, you know, every element you could want, except for, for I would say, racial diversity and, you know, no body size diversity, but it follows the friendship of two inseparable women, um, one of whom experiences sexual violence as a teen. And what's fascinating is they, they do it right because they center on her and her pain. It's not actually this, you know, gratuitous scene of rape. Um, and then accurate in that it shows the the ripple effect of how that that affects people around her, how that affects her, you know, her life moving forward, her romantic life. And I I like Big Sky. Uh, it's you know it's interesting. I mean the value is you know, but it it's got this. So right now we're waiting for the next uh, the the next season, and you've got two young women with an incredible amount of agency, two sisters who are together with another woman, and the, the depiction of a, a trans woman is fantastic. But also, you know, they're in captivity, and uh, you see a lot of great racial diversity and two women really driving the plot line. Um, one of whom is not afraid to use violence when she needs to, and so it's this very interesting. It's not sexually objectifying violence. It's not, you know, a fighting fuck toy. It's women who have a lot of agency and empowerment, but aren't reduced to sex objects, which, you know, just as an aside, it it baffles me that when you reduce someone to a sexual object for the audience, it robs the character of agency. And yet so many content creators continue to mix that without making it about the sexual subjectivity of the character. I think they do a great job of that in Big Sky. You mentioned race, and I just wanted to circle back quickly to A Promising Young Woman. What did you think of the character of Gail, played by Laverne Cox? There's been criticism of casting her in the role of the the boss who doesn't have a life of her own and who exists completely to care about Cassie and her future in terms of work, in terms of her personal life. Okay, so... A lot of people would say that Laverne Cox is wasted in that role. And I take exception to that. Why is she wasted? They need somebody in that role. For one thing, they don't comment upon her trans status whatsoever. It's not like, here's a role for a trans woman to be in. So that's a win right there. She's a business owner. She's a small business owner, owns her own cafe, is the boss, and is the rock of stability in this woman's life. She's the one who kind of puts the boyfriend through the ringer. Um, she's the one who cares. And I thought, why not put her there? Because of the whole history of the fe- the Black female sidekick who cares about the white person whose show it really is. Th- yeah. That would be the reason. Sure. And, you know, if you could say that maybe Cassie could have been a Black woman, Asian woman. You know, sure, it could have been. Yeah. I just don't think that she's wasted there. I think that she's a great actress and she she deserves to be in whatever role she wants to be in. It's not her. It's that job is going to go to a white person or, you know, I, I don't know. I think that there's going to be plenty of roles for Laverne. She's going to kill it in a lot of other films. And I'm glad she was a part of this one. She's the one who seems to to know. I mean, I just love that she was the, she's not like the, co- the, the co-worker. She's not her sassy co-worker friend who's just there making cappuccinos she's the business owner and she's saying you've got to get out of here and she's the confidant and i don't know i appreciate your point 100 and this is something that we fight all the time on my show uh for diversity but i just sometimes i just hate when they say somebody's wasted in a role uh, it's like no it's great well, that she ain't i didn't them. use the word waste. no i know you didn't I, but I, I i've, I've yeah, seen that yeah 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 yeah, yeah. I didn't think she was wasted at all. Um, I thought the casting could have been more, you know, could have been diverse in terms of 
body size uh, in terms of sexuality is pretty good. Race, it could have been a lot better. It was great in terms of gender. So if you're looking at, you know, how folks are represented, no disability representation whatsoever. I mean, there are always things that I'm looking for. But I think Laverne Cox's role, as you point out, when I'm like, oh, there's a black female business owner. Yes. Um, what I wish is that we would have seen more of her. Um, I also wish that she would have joined up with Cassie because it felt like she was definitely down to, um, you know, to uh, get justice. You know, the, in her interactions with Cassie about her boyfriend, it seemed like, you know, that would have been a logical place to go. I would have loved to have known more about her backstory, mostly because she played the character so well. I was intrigued. Yeah. But to, but to your point, you know, definitely Ryan could have been a personal color, you know, there, there were a lot more opportunities to have this be a much more diverse cast for sure. Just in terms of Laverne and her role, it was telling that Emerald Fennell chose to write it the way she did and finish the film throughout the little, the little heart that Nina, that sorry, that Cassie was wearing with Nina's name on it. And she wore that when she went to the, to the bachelor party. And then at the end, of course, she gives that. The other half. Yeah, the other half. And it's, I, I wonder what you read into that, Lisa. One little thought flashed through me like, is she handing over the passing the baton in this sort of thing? Or was it just, no, I think it's just a friendship thing where, you know, they, uh, Cassie and, and Nina had theirs and then she's left hers for, for the I just character. thought it was evidence. I thought it was evidence. Oh, like okay. if the police are going to come around and ask you, you know, you're going to be a witness or whatever, you're going to say, oh, and look, she left me. <laughs> Is this, we know we can identify her and this is, you know, I don't know. Well, thank you all so very much for joining me today. What a pleasure. And um, I hope that we us. can do this again. Anytime you want to talk about anything, you let me know because I would love to have you on again. You have such great insights. So thank you so much. Just before you wrap up, Lisa, professors, is there, if anybody wants to follow uh, you or learn more about you? Whereabout can they do that? Uh, websites, socials, um, anything like that? that you I do to... have an article that just came out. Well, came out recently in the LA Review. Please buy her book. We will we will post your book so that people can read. Caroline, where can people find you? I'm at Caroline Heldman, H-E-L-D-M-A-N, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, because I've been on there forever. I actually have my name. And then uh, it's uh, DrCarolineHeldman.com. Well, it was really fun. Um, I've been dying to talk about this. So thank you for having me. Ooh, that was great, Lisa and Dean. It was so good. Thanks for your time, ladies. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Okay, bye. Awesome. Thank you so much. And for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. Killer Casting is a concept created and produced by me, Lisa Zambetti, with audio engineering by Dean Laffin, logo art by the lovely April Laffin, website and big old fat opinions courtesy of Brian Allen Hill.